Hello, I'm Simon Burton and you're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105, an hour in which we'll explore the art of murder mystery crime writing. Hear how Shakespeare and his ghosts can deliver tantalising clues and coded messages, take a look at playful art grounded in reality outside cyberspace and hear about a new arts club that's making waves. In this edition... Artist Nicola Powers introduces her work at her new exhibition, Material Wealth, at Williams Art. Cambridge author Jill Peyton Walsh talks on being a crime novelist and the task of continuing the work of Dorothy Sayers featuring gentleman sleuth Lord Peter Whimsey. We investigate creative cabaret filling an entertainment niche in the grad pad with Lucy Alexander. And local playwright Ronnie Drew talks on celebrating Shakespeare's 450th birthday with a street performance of her play trilogy, Shakespeare Reformed. You had plenty money, 19. You let other women make a fool of you Why don't you do right Like some other men do In a world that can be viewed as relentlessly disappearing into virtual reality and cyberspace fully appreciating authenticity and taking interest in the real world we actually inhabit around us has never been at a lower ebb I've been talking to an artist who's concerned with keeping people grounded and based in the reality this side of the flickering screen, fully appreciating things that we can touch, smell, explore and experiment with as a source for ideas for powerful artwork. Nicola Powers makes her own materials and likes to paint on things rather than canvases. She's just opened a new exhibition, Material Wealth, at Williams Art in Gwider Street. Nicola, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself, because the last time I met you, you were exhibiting in the Museum of Technology. Um, lots of wonderful work there. Uh, what, where do you come from in terms of your art? art? What's your bio? My training is in glass, hmm. actually, from Edinburgh College of Art. I was then moved on to become an animator in London. Hmm. I worked uh, for various film companies, and I'm a self-trained and self-taught painter, which I did when I moved to Cambridge when I was 30, so I've been painting since I was 30. Uh, and you're currently teaching at Compton Village College? I am, yes. I uh, was a professional artist for many years, and especially in France, but when I came back from France, I needed to make a bit more of a living, so I became a teacher, and I love it there, actually. <laughs> um, you're, you're someone who, who does illustrative drawing, um, obviously your, your, your paintings, etc. Um, tell me about the kind of um, the, the, the source of the materials, first of all, that you use and where do they come from and what's the story behind them? Because they're, they're very interesting things because you, you sort of paint on things rather than on canvases, don't you? I do. Well, I do paint on canvas as well, but I have a fear of a white canvas, hmm. uh, like many artists actually. And uh, so I prefer to work on found backgrounds. I love history. Hmm. I love things that have got a trace or a mark or a footprint from another time or from another person that inspires the work and the direction that it goes in. Um, I mean, I notice you've, you've got things like uh, pieces of, of rough cans of canvas that could have come from anything, basically, mm -hmm. from uh, uh, some kind of cover for a farm machine or something with, with um, rings and then things behind them with splashes of light that kind of play um, on the nature of what the objects are and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, is, is that process juxtaposing things very important for you? Very important, uh, mm, very mm, important. The uh, texture yeah. of something is mm. very Like I say, I'm glass trained, so I love 
light. I love mm. colour. Mm. I love transparency. A lot mm. of my work is is about transparency painting on the back of glass or acetate. But for this particular show, uh, I wanted to focus more on uh, grounded materials. So I've got lead, I've got wood, I wanted to to talk about recycling found stuff i've got old muslin i've got a bit of an ironing board in there with linen that's full of splashes so this is the work that i've got in this particular show is a bit of a departure in that way what are the highlights in in, in this exhibition material? Well, well for me mm. personally i love the three pieces on the arch wall which mm. are made with found uh, glass tiles uh, put together with wood there's like i mentioned before the ironing board and lead is my one of my favorite materials lead mm. from being stained glass mm. and working with glass i love sheet lead mm. i love the pattern on it it's an it's an artwork in itself yeah mm. um and th- there's a piece the piece that you're using for um your exhibition flyer mm. um mm. is something to do with um a lunar landing or so oh yeah that's a piece uh, uh, uh yeah <laughs> that's that's um it's basically so how does this thing happen you do a sketch in your shed i'm i'm a colorist mm. i love color mm. actually and uh I made a piece which is in there as well. I just liked it. It was sitting around for a bit. It goes into your brain. Mm. I found a solar panel, a piece of wood, Mm. and it looked like the two would go together. So Mm. what the piece becomes when you put idea on top of material, Mm. uh, it suddenly all comes together. So we've got a moonscape on a solar panel. Mm. It's one thing reacting to another, basically. That's what you look look for. And I noticed in in your drawings um, that you have um, drawings where people are... There's interplay between two people, whether they're blowing clouds of smoke between them, um, that that, that they're they're enjoying a playful moment. And it's one thing next to another. It's it's how things um, interact with each other that interests you. Yeah, well, well, actually, it's how you it's how you see it's how mm-hmm. we see and mm. for me I always look at the space in between mm. so it's the space around in between when you're talking about materials it's it's the interaction of material and idea it's more of that kind of thing that I'm after rather than a true representation of of it of something and what do you aim to do with your art you, you want to uplift people but you want to make them think a little bit don't you I do uh, definitely uh, it's uh, a teacher in me mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and being a teacher I mean I, I noticed that enjoying maturities obviously comes through in your in, in all of your work it has that feeling of a mature artistic brain and yet you spend your time teaching children do they actually fuel that in in, in your in your work do you they, go away from teaching children and go think crumbs you know i must i must do this now because of that as it were uh they absolutely do oh. in that i so it's a circular mm-hmm. thing i encourage them to play mm-hmm. with materials and with paint our outcomes are not great mm-hmm. i have to say but that's where i'm coming from and then through that process of play, I get inspired to use mm. something that maybe I haven't thought of for a while. I go home and I put my experience onto that and it happens again. Um, you've done some great large paintings. like The one, it's got sort of lots of squirrely Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Yes, yes. Got, yes. Um, that was about, there's a lot of Arabic yeah. uh, influence right. coming through in the, that mark making. Mm. I have done a lot of series of work, which is about lettering Mm. which I love Mm. but done in a way that looks almost like an Arabic script Mm. which I also love I love the decorative aspect of it and the fact it could say something Mm. Um, worshipping the icon yeah that's again it's about you know why do we Mm -hmm. you know and there could be celebrities as well Mm. as religious icons Mm -hmm. and you have um, uh, things like a figurative nude um as well yeah uh, that that to me was just a, a brilliant piece of work the way oh, that well, came together you. absolutely amazing um and um there's another piece called prostitutes of warsaw yes um where you're using light and shade to 
um, convey um, mood and silhouettes and things like that. Um, that that's really interesting because uh, once you have the crib, you know what it's about. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly that that whole subject um, comes mm. across in the work. Mm. You must be very proud of that piece. I uh, love that piece. You know, it's yeah. one of my favourites. Mm. Yeah, and mm. it's basically it's quite flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has some collage on it. It has different techniques. Again, that's the kind of thing I love. It's also split into three. Mm-hmm. It's a triptych, mm-hmm. which is very important mm-hmm. for me. I do quite a lot of work uh, mm. using the triptych form- formula. And uh, I really worked on that one. And it was one of those pieces where you just you just put the last little bit on mm. and you go, oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, you, that doesn't happen very often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I noticed in, in the exhibition at Williams Art, you have a, a large um, canvas with this um, sacking material or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. And then there's... A, a ring right in the middle of the painting that juts out that you could actually sort of put your finger through. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a that was a um, an interesting touch because it, it changes the nature of the work, doesn't it? Um, putting that in. Um, I often <laughs> thought I should be a sculptor. I work in a very sculptural way, and uh, I do love the three dimensions of stuff. I'm just trying to still learn how to do the two D stuff, and then I might move on. But. Um, that piece I really love. That's the ring mm. is the top of a very old postman's bag from france so the ring is the top and Mm. i've just opened it out and left the ring in basically it's a beautiful piece of sacking Um, (laughs) well well, um, you've got a talk coming up um, yes any day now Um, can you tell me a bit about what that's going to contain well it will be i mean i just i I am a bit of an evangelist (laughs) a teacher in me and it's about um keeping people grounded keeping them based in reality the more that we go into screens and virtual and all that kind of stuff and i see it a lot at school um and so my my whole thing is you know be aware of what you're walking on Mm. what you're smelling what you're touching the pieces that are around you um and that you can actually do something that's quite profound using that that stuff that's around Mm. i'm also really mean and I don't like paying the high prices that you have to pay for art materials Mm. I find it I just think it's a con it's a rip-off I've always made my own paints I use pigment and oil I've always made my own gesso and a rabbit skin glue that's how the big ones held together and I just I love the connection with the old techniques from the middle ages the fact that you can take something from the contemporary world and put the two together and I'll be talking quite a lot about that and also there will be an interactive bit Mm. Sounds sounds absolutely great. And w- mm. what date is that kicking off? Where is it and what time does it start? Well, that's going to be uh, at Williams Art mm. in the gallery at six o'clock. Mm. A week today, a Wednesday, which is Wednesday, so it's Wednesday the 30th. Yeah. So you should go to this exhibition. Nicola Power, thank yes. you very much indeed for spending some time <laughs> to talk to Cambridge on No problem. Thank you very much.
There's rarely a year that passes in Cambridge's history when something dramatic doesn't happen as a result of an outrageous bet or dare that, if sufficiently witty, eventually enters the prestigious annals of Cambridge urban myth and student legend. Societies and clubs such as the Cambridge Night Climbers Club typify a tradition of doing slightly crazy and forbidden things, like scaling buildings and at one time positing a loo seat on the top of a King's College chapel spire. Needless to say, there's often also tragedies as people fall through the ice into the river in winter or misjudge a stunt. Such tales make rich pickings for creative writing, especially if it's in the tradition of murder mystery, as I discovered talking to Cambridge author Jill Peyton Walsh, who as well as writing her own murder mystery novel set in Cambridge with female sleuth Imogen Kwai, also continues the Lord Peter Whimsey series by Dorothy Sayers. Originally a children's writer, she later became a novelist and was awarded the CBE for services to literature. Her character Imogen Kwai is a college nurse and fellow of an imaginary St Agatha's College. I caught up with her Cambridge insider world in the novel The Bad Quarto, which begins when a student dare goes wrong and suspected foul play sets off the action. Um, Why did you take up uh, writing um, crime um, detective stories? Um, Is that because of your uh, love affair with the work of Dorothy Sayers, or was it something that you were into anyway? I wrote a literary novel which failed to find a British Mm. publisher. It found an American publisher. Mm. It was called Knowledge of Angels, Mm. and it got to the, as far as the Booker shortlist. But before that, my husband and I had had to publish it ourselves in this country. So my agent said he didn't think he could sell another literary novel for me had I ever thought of taking to crime. And as people do when they're in a tight corner, I took to crime. And uh, I thought it would be fun. And I based my detective on a real person who was then the neighbour of my uh, second husband in Newnham and who was a college nurse and who could keep me on the straight and narrow with regards to what college nurses actually did with their time. Um, St Agatha is some, somewhere kind of placed somewhere near in the, in, the, in, the, um, in the ether, near the back of Magdalen College, isn't it, on Castle Hill? Uh, yes, I knocked down Shire Hall, which yeah, I don't like very don't much, like. and put, put a lovely Jacobean college in its place. Uh, I have to say, writing about Cambridge, mm-hmm. one of the great pieces of fun is knocking over the buildings you don't like mm-hmm. and replacing mm-hmm. them with imaginary buildings. Um, okay, now, now Imogen is, um, uh, is an amateur sleuth. Um, is this role is not sort of officially appointed to her, is it? It's, it's something that she's sort of fallen into by being given responsibility for students, is that right? Yes, <laughs> she, she is a deliberately considered mm. uh, detective. Mm. She has advantages. She is, of course, in, ensconced in mm. the academic world of Cambridge, but she's just an ordinary Cambridge citizen born and bred, so she's also a town girl, and she has town friends <laughs> um, Furthermore, she has a bit of medical expertise Mm. and she is a deliberate reply from a a woman of my generation to all these extraordinary women detectives who broke upon the scene more recently who can knock over a prize fighter, a tote of gun, date a a body by the number of bugs crawling out of it um, and are generally aggressively macho. Mm. And I, my detective is more like a golden age detective. She's a good detective because she listens to people, and mm. so she knows more about them than others do. She's a detective using a woman's a woman's set of tools, not the kind of pseudo male detect, women detectives which many of my contemporary mm. detective story writers write about. The view, as a viewpoint character, the mm. college nurse is a, is a, a very interesting and fruitful uh, source of a detective. Um, uh, obviously, being, being someone who, who lives in Cambridge, you, you use as a starting point um, the Cambridge Night 
Climbing Club, which was um, basically an organisation where people um, uh, took fantastic risks, risks to do things like um, jump the Senate House leap, um, and notoriously many people have, have died doing these things as Cambridge traditions because they've done them when they were drunk or they've done them uh, you know, foolish or, times. Or and because like their that. fathers and grandfathers did it and now they've jolly well got to themselves. You know. <laughs> and, and this story was a story uh, waiting to be written, in my opinion, because um, there are so many stories like that in Cambridge, and I I expect as a writer you probably know lots of them don't you? Cambridge is, is for me both the place I live in reality mm-hmm. and an imaginary city mm-hmm. and it's in the imaginary city that people um, do these foolish things. I've never seen anybody jump the Senate House Passage. But you've um, heard of it being done. I've heard of it being done yes. <laughs> and, and obviously um, Cambridge is a place full of um, societies where bets and dares and things like that take place and this, this story kicks off with somebody who tries to jump the, which you've renamed Harley's Folly in the, in the novel, and yet disastrously falls um, down the gap and, and, and dies on the pavement. That's a great starting point. Um, what happens when you create a, um, a murder mystery? I mean, uh, the, the characters, do they take on a kind of human, living, breathing thing for you as a writer? What happens is that you, you set them in motion, like, mm. like the beginning of a game of chess. Mm-hmm. You put your pieces on the board... Of course, if it's a detective story, you've got to have a plot in mind. <laughs> if it's an, a free-running novel, let's say not a detective story <laughs> of any kind, you can just wait and see what the characters do yeah. and let them do it. <laughs> but if you're writing a detective story, there have to be clues. <laughs> so you do have to know approximately who is going to murder whom and why <laughs> before you start in order to lay the gunpowder trail of clues. <laughs> so it, it's slightly mechanical, um, not in an adverse sense of mechanical, <laughs> but rather as you might... Look, think of the working of a beautiful clock mm. or something. It has mm. to be carefully geared to work properly. Mm-hmm. And, and in Imogen's love life, um, she is um, involved with um, a, a, an ageing Don. Um, uh, tell me about that character. I'm very interested in, um, in everything I write. Mm. I'm interested in love, in mm. human affection. Okay. Yeah. And the stereotyped love in which it's always sexual and always between contemporaries has been very well written about by many a novelist, by many and many and many a novelist. I'm interested in these odd, slightly mismatched occasions when yeah. love blossoms. Yeah. And Imogen's tenderness for this person she's cared for and helped get better mm. is a perfectly realistic supposition. Mm. Oh. It's an intellectual friendship based on tender human care. Mm. It's one of those situations which we all know in real life, we've mm. all seen it in real life, mm. Where do you find it in literature? Yeah. I, like, I like trying to find, to write about things which haven't already been done comprehensively by mm. the great writers of the world. And that offbeat, uh, out of, slightly out of time, mm. profound affection, is a very, uh, it's an interesting one. I enjoyed writing that. The story um, basically also um, incorporates an Anne Dram production of Shakespeare's Hamlet called The Bad Quarto, where one of the actors deliberately gives clue to to the suspected murderer that he knows that the, this fall from the Senate House leap was not an accident. There's a mystery in mm. Hamlet, in, mm. not only in the Bad Quarto yeah. version, but yeah. in all versions, mm. yeah. and that is what the mime is doing. Yeah. There's a mime in the middle in which a murder is mimed, yeah. and... The, the, problem, the problem with it is that if the murder is mined like mm. that, you are... I mean, Hamlet is trying to flush out the guilty king mm. by showing what, what happened. Mm. But the problem is it's immediately followed by a play, an Amdram play embedded mm. in Hamlet. Mm. Why do you need the mime and the play? Yeah. Now, that's one of those little puzzles in life that I have 
meditated over while drinking mm. an odd cup of tea for a long mm. time. And I came up with a possible answer, of course, uh, which uh, is embedded in the book. Mm. Why do you think I people hope... return again and again to this kind of story? Because they just want more and more of it, don't they? In one of my other um, mm. uh, manifestations as a detective story writer, when I'm writing about Peter Whimsey, yeah, yeah. I wrote... Um, well, correction, there is a passage in the first uh, Dorothy Sayers completion that I wrote yeah. in which Harriet Vane, who is a detective story writer, diminishes her own her own work and says, yeah. well, it's not art, is yeah. it? It's, and Peter rebukes her and says, what a detective story is, is a dream of justice. Mm-hmm. And although it may be a dream and not reality, the world would be a much worse place if people did not hunger and thirst for justice and wish to dream of it. At least it keeps the idea of justice alive. And I think the detective story does do that. It offers you a world in which evil is found out. It's found out by the exercise of intelligence, which particularly in Cambridge is roughly the same thing as goodness. Yeah. And it's, it's matters are then resolved and put into order. It's the world as it ought to be, and mm. we all wish it were like that. And so I think a detective story is a it's like comfort reading for clever people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who read Mills and Boone stories, mm-hmm. um, very sort of predictable mm-hmm. love stories for mm-hmm. comfort. Mm-hmm. Round here, people are more likely to want to read a, an intellectual mm-hmm. puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the dream of justice that comforts them and makes them want more and more. Um, now, obviously, Dorothy Sayer, um, what, an absolutely classic um, crime writer um, who created the character of Lord Peter Whimsey. Um, how did your relationship with Doris, Dorothy Sayers and continuing her work in the, in the famous Sayers connection begin? Did you know her well yourself? Uh, I knew her writing well. Yeah, yeah. I've been in love with Lord Peter Whimsey yeah, since yeah. I was 14, yeah. and I still am, mm. which, yeah. which is helpful mm. in the situation. Mm. Um, I didn't ever meet her personally, mm. Mm. although... Uh, her last surviving real-life friend is still with us. Is mm. Dr. Barbara Reynolds, mm. who is a, an Italian scholar, who helped Sayers finish Dante mm. and who knew her very well. So there's somebody I've been able to talk to who did know her very well. Um, but she herself was most proud of her translation of Dante's Divine Comedy, wasn't she? Yes, uh, she was. Yeah, uh, she was a, a frustrated scholar. I mean, yeah. she wasn't able to pursue scholarship when she was a young woman mm. because she was a vicar's daughter. There yeah. wasn't money and it was very difficult for women to adopt mm-hmm. that career in, in her time. And so she eventually um, wrote detective stories as a practical way of earning money. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, in the war, she took a copy of The Divine Comedy down an Eric shelter yeah. to read, it blew her mind and she fell in love with Dante and abandoned Lord Peter, mm-hmm. leaving an unfinished Lord Peter behind her. She proceeded to concentrate on Dante's scholarship for the rest of her life. Uh, now, she created, obviously, this, this well-heeled bachelor gentleman living in London who collects rare books, Lord Peter Whimsey. It's her creation, but she creates all that's best in a gentleman in that character, doesn't she? Um, uh, yes, she does. Yeah. She didn't know anything yeah. about such people at all, yeah. well outside her social yeah. circle, and she makes a lot of mistakes in the protocol. Yeah. But she vividly imagined um, a man who required an intellectual equal as his consort. Mm-hmm. And she vividly imagined that 
out of need because mm. in her own life she had a very difficult time with men. And I think he's wish fulfillment, and of course he still is wish fulfillment for large numbers of intelligent women who to this day don't find any too many men who mm. want an intellectual equal as their consort. Some of her and see what they think. Now, now you're given the task of taking up the character of Lord P- Peter Wimsey and finishing off um, one of her novels, and then you wrote several more and published um, most recently um, The Late Scholar in. 2013. What was it like um, taking on somebody else's work and being expected, you know, anticipated, you know, meeting the anticipation of the readers to continue a, a legend like that? Was that difficult? Well, I think most readers anticipate mm. that you yeah. will fail when you do something like that. Yeah. So uh, it's a technical challenge yeah. of great interest. Yeah. I mean, I was offered the job. Mm. Um, Phyllis James, P.D. James, having been offered it before me mm. and having said that she thought it wasn't possible, mm. and. I think if you imagine yourself as a professional musician and somebody shows you a piece of music and yeah. says, can you play that? Yeah. I mean, you go to the piano and have a shot, don't yeah, you? You yeah. don't. Uh, I, th- I was very interested in the technical challenge. Can you, in 1994, complete something abandoned in 1936? Yeah. And, of course, the first question is, why did she abandon it? Yeah. Is it booby-trapped yeah. in some way? Yeah. The, um, I had to cross the Atlantic and read the papers deposited at Wheaton College, Illinois, which yeah. is where some yeah. of her papers landed up. Yeah. And when I found it, it was in a mess. Well, anybody's would be in a mess in that situation. And it took a lot of collating and getting together. I worked out why she had abandoned it. And then I was prepared to have a shot at it. It, It's not quite as difficult as people think it would be. Because any novelist can do various characters. You you can't be a novelist if you can't do various characters. The narrative voice is only another character mm. in a novel. Yeah. So if you you must be able to do the narrative voice if you can do the characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the other reason why it's not as difficult as people think it might be is because she spoke the King's English, and I was brought up speaking the King's English. Yeah. So I don't have a great deal of difficulty in imitating her style, mm. which is in a way my native tongue. Is that a bit like kind of art restoration? You have so much of yes. the thing and you have to... It's very much have, like yeah, art restoration, yeah, yes. Yeah, well, like yeah, uh, yeah. art restoration where, say, something like the Temple at Knossos, where yeah. there are socking great bits of the plaster completely missing. Yeah. So you carefully restore what's there and then you paint over the blanks in harmony with what's yeah. there. Um, Whimsy finally marries the love of his life, um, Harriet Vane, um, in The Late Scholar. And then she takes up um, a, a role as the Duchess of Denver. There are three colleges, at least, which have a hereditary visitor. Yeah. And that's an accident in which the Constitution has been written to give the name of a duke who happens to be the vice-chancellor at the time, instead of saying the vice-chancellor is the visitor. So then you get a visitorship which goes down the line of dukes instead of the line, down the line of vice-chancellors. It's happened in both universities. In that case, of course, the Duke of Denver could be a hereditary visitor. And far from Peter being retired from detection, now he's a duke, he finds out suddenly that he has responsibilities for an Oxford college. And... The Oxford College in question is reft with conflict because they have a very valuable manuscript, a manuscript of the Boethius, hmm. which might have belonged to King Alfred. And they could, they're trying to raise money to buy some land speculatively yeah. to make their fortunes for the future. Half the fellowship think it would be a cultural crime to sell the manuscript. The other half are eagerly rubbing their hands and voting to sell it. The vote is evenly split. The warden has a casting vote, but he's disappeared. And suddenly people start being murdered. Each time somebody is murdered, the balance of the vote shifts. So they call for their visitor to come and sort it out for them. And that's the Donny of the book. 
It sounds brilliant. It's and it let me have enormous fun writing about Oxford affectionately, hmm. but also the more serious element we were mentioning earlier, writing about late happy marriage. Hmm. And that's a subject which it's not inf- doesn't infrequently happen in real life. We hmm. probably can all yeah. sit down and think hmm. of several of our friends. But in literature, where is it? Where hmm. is it described? I could think hmm. of uh, uh, Admiral and Mrs Croft in Persuasion, and then I stopped. I really can't think of very many literary descriptions of it, so mm. I thought, well, right, I'll fill in this gap. Mm. So I've also had fun writing about Peter and Harriet, now married, many years married, with children at university, applying to university age, and describing that affectionately. Mm. So I had a lot of fun writing that book. Jill Payson Walsh, thank you very much indeed for, for talking to me about your work. It's most interesting. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105.
Last night, the grad pad in Mill Lane hosted a full house as people flocked to sample a new cabaret club, filling a much-talked-about missing niche in Cambridge's entertainment scene. Creative Cabaret's Lucy Alexander is a founding partner in the club with Charlotte Sanke of Creative Warehouse and says it's drawing in people looking for some intelligent action. Lucy, tell me about um, yourself um, and how you got involved in Creative Cabaret. It hasn't been going for very long, has it? No, it's been going for just over a year mm. and um, we've sold out every of the every one of the seven events. So I... Um, I moved to Cambridge just over a year ago, mm. not long before we started Creative Cabaret. I knew Charlotte from London from years ago when we worked together in a big NGO mm. in London. I'd only been here six weeks and she said, did I want to meet for a coffee? And did I want to um, hear about her new idea and see if I wanted to be involved? Mm. And she told me, she said, I've had this idea. This is exactly what Cambridge needs. It's, um, you know, in Cambridge, you can go to a gig any night of the week, a classical concert any night of the week, a play. You can hear academics speaking, all of these things. But that's only one thing at a time. And I want to put on a cabaret, which is like a review and where you can get lots of different things in one evening. It's exciting to have launched this event, which keeps selling out. How many people uh, in a sold-out event are coming to an event it's, like that? It's um, 200. Yeah. So mm. the cabarets are held at the University Centre okay. near Scudamore's in Mill Lane, Mill Lane Granter yeah. Place. About 200. Um, you're doing mixed arts forms, music, poetry, films, philosophy, comedy, and even magic, I hear. And mime. Um, yes, this... We, we have a brilliant magician who works the tables. We have academics. For example, we've got fame lab scientists um, who are Cambridge graduates giving three-minute talks about um, one of their pet subjects. Um, we have, as you say, poetry, philosophy, mime, comedy, music magic film and photography as well take me through um, the um, evening that's just gone um we've um had um sindhu v who is um she was a finalist for funny women and she came up from london yeah and um it has a very funny take on living with an indian mother and yet being a modern woman in britain for example her mother when she discovered that she she came out about smoking and her mother said, well, you must be a lesbian then. Um, have had Polly Polsmer, we've had her twice now. She is a Cambridge um, singer-songwriter, very, very talented, um, writes beautiful songs and has a wonderful voice. The band um, we've had this time is also Cambridge, very Mill Road-based. In fact, Polly's um, just round the corner from the radio station too. So it's very, it's lovely finding new Cambridge talent, as well as having people from London. Um, and tell me about Charlotte Sankey. What does she do? What's her role in it? She, uh, she will compare, and mm. it was her idea, because she's lived in Cambridge for 15 years, and... Um, in fact, when I last worked with her was when she just moved to Cambridge and I was living in Hertfordshire and she launched a magazine called Cambridge Agenda. Mm. And um, then that went on to be very successful. So she's, she, she loves launching new ideas, basically. Is there any opportunity to see um, sort of artwork um, uh, connected to um, a, a cabaret, like sort of Romy Snyder's um, film posters and things like that? At the February cabaret, oh, yeah. we um, actually had... We have a... Um, a screen as our backdrop and on it in the intervals we had rotating sculptures 
pictures of sculptures. Um, This time what we've done is filmed um, some of the performers and we're going to put snips snippets on YouTube. Each performer Mm -hmm. um, has their slot of anything between 3 and 20 minutes. Mm. And um, if they're a poet, they'll be reading their work. If they're a singer-songwriter, they'll be singing their work. It's not a burlesque cabaret. There's Mm. one of those in Cambridge already, and we don't want to um, tread on their toes. And also, that's not what creative cabaret is about. It's about the arts, the Mm. performing arts. Mm. Please book for the next cabaret in June Mm. um, via our website, which is creativecabaretcambridge.co.uk. Um, tickets available online or come around to the office at Seven Downing Place and also do look for us on YouTube because we're about to put up um, some of the highlights from last night's cabaret Hmm. and we would love as many people as possible to have a look Sounds absolutely fantastic Uh, Lucy Alexander, thank you very much indeed for telling one about it If I were a time traveller Climb inside my traveling ship and take a trip to find myself a week ago. And if myself could see me and hear what now me have to say, I wonder how I'd phrase it all to make me understand. Cause love. Cryptic song 
and play it on the radio one morning and in that song I tell me to hold you tight and never let you go to grab my gun and climb up on my rooftop and fire out a warning and last evening might have stopped washing my dishes might have covered you in kisses before I wipe my hands dry yeah last evening might have said come sit beside me might have emptied out the diary sunny day let's go outside oh but last evening was a blissful bumbling idiot then crash landing through my days with life's detritus on my mind yeah last evening didn't know your hours were counted took your warm fresh face for granted didn't stop to say goodbye say goodbye bye bye say goodbye This week has seen the 450th anniversary of William Shakespeare's birthday and across the country theatres have been celebrating the bar's dramatic genius in no small measure. As we heard earlier in the programme, a shortened version of Hamlet, normally a four and a half hour play, called The Bad Quarto, playing a key part in a murder mystery, exploiting Hamlet's father's ghost to further a deadly plot. Well, a fascination with Hamlet is enduring, as I heard from local playwright Ronnie Drew, who's had a go at her own shortened Hamlet in three acts, turning it around to deliver a feminist take on Hamlet, and she's also created two other works inspired by Shakespeare, staged earlier this week in Cambridge. She dropped into 105 to talk on Shakespeare Reformed. Rani, once again, your your usual skill um, is to take something we know and turn it on its head uh, yes. as a starting point for some drama. Yes, yes, and I enjoy that, and mm. nothing better than that. Where did the idea come from to commit such sacrilege as to rewrite, <laughs> write, or or reuse word <laughs> yeah. the work of the bard? I, the, the, these plays were written in Hungary um, around uh, mid nineties, and um, uh, I just. Uh, because uh, Shakespeare is more of a bard in uh, Hungary than he is in in um, Britain, mm. uh, and they call him Shakespeare Bachi, Shakespeare Uncle, mm. and uh, the National Theatre is absolutely, you know, he he's almost a national poet and dramatist for them. So I thought, well, I need to knock that down, and um, and 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 start with, uh, um, you know, showing up uh, some of the things which, uh, um, you know. Of course, any playwright writes what he or she wants to. So there is no quibble of that with Shakespeare. But um, uh, the uh, the treatment of uh, the Queen, who was actually quite faultless, this is in Hamlet, and, uh, and uh, Ophelia, who was really quite a nice, uh, innocent person, she was absolutely ravished by, um, you know, criticism and anger and, uh, and wrath and, uh, and, and um, you know, doing things, you know, that um, weren't nice, gentle. Uh, 
And um, so I thought, well, I ought to. Well, basically, it wasn't even that. It was that nobody actually has worked out what was the trouble with Hamlet. Mm. Because if you pr perform Hamlet, uh, full Hamlet or Shakespeare's, it, would, it takes about four and a half hours. And it's very, very long. That's why it is often cut down and performed. And I thought, well... I'll cut it down and then I will add to it another perspective. Maybe maybe women can tell more about what was wrong with uh, mm. uh, with Hamlet. That wasn't the problem that Shakespeare had set out to 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 find. Mm. But I think there is a, there there is a motive behind the whole thing that uh, 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 Hamlet was a university man. He had gone to university along with Fortinbras. So there are two kingdoms. One is uh, Norway and one is Denmark. And both, there are two young men who are going to get the, the throne. But there is a contrast between them, which doesn't really come out too clearly for people who can't understand uh, Shakespeare that quickly. So you've managed to boil it down um, into th three acts. Yes. Um, and what have you... Ha what have, well, first of all, you must have taken away masses and masses and masses to, um, and selected the situations that you want to be concerned with. But that must have been a terribly difficult um, task to, to try well, and do Well, in a way, mm. it wasn't, because what I, what I did was I, I've only added 15 pages mm. uh, in uh, uh, prologue and epilogue and a prologue for each act of uh, Shakespeare and then an epilogue at the end. So what I'm doing is I'm getting uh, Ophelia uh, back because she dies in, in Act 4 of, of uh, Shakespeare and I use that scene for the first prologue. I show her death and, uh, uh, and then I show that her ghost comes back. So this is balancing the ghost of Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet's father. Uh, you, you employ um, prologue and epilogues um, in, in most of the things that you do, don't you? Because basically you, you use them to explain to the audience what it is you're, get, you're, you're driving at. In yes, your, and, and, and Shakespeare does use it in, in mm. this technique in certain plays, and I can't remember now what. So I have taken it from his plays and, mm. and used it. So with getting Ophelia's mm. um, so, uh, ghost back, uh, I, I make Ophelia look at Hamlet and say what was wrong with him. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that he, in a Freudian way, it turns out that he was, was, was uh, uh, you know, father-oriented. He didn't become, uh, 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 he didn't have the same problem as the Oedipus complex. He didn't marry his mother, mm -hmm. but he rubbished her. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, this was, the, 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 and, and also he, he uh, became hateful towards uh, uh, Ophelia mm -hmm. because he set out to uh, to take revenge of his father's death, you know. Well, well, there are only two women in the play, um, obviously Gertrudis um, and Ophelia. Um, are, are you slightly annoyed that there weren't more women? Um, no, no. I, you, We talked the other day about, um, you were saying that you look at Shakespeare's women and, and, and each of them have had different attributes um, and different things. And, and obviously the more women that he does, the more you can see into his mind and look at it critically. Yes, um, I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, 
no, you can't be critical of people if they use one woman. Yeah, I mean, myself, yeah, yeah. in the last play, mm. Unsung Heroine of the Double Helix, yeah. I had one woman and, mm. and uh, six men. <laughs> so I don't think that matters so much. What matters is that uh, these women in Elizabethan mm. time, and I think some of the things are still happening, uh, people haven't been able to work out what was his problem. Mm -hmm. Why did he go on and on? And uh, from the... Uh, from the Freudian point of view, it is that he actually um, went to the father's side and uh, became anti his mother. And um, Ophelia says, look, I will show you what your problem is. Uh, you have worked out a play to find out the conscience of the king. I will also... Uh, uh, enact a play which will show what was your trouble mm -hmm. because your father turned up and called you <laughs> to himself and told the girl to go away <laughs> uh, and this gender split in the children the, fa the, the son goes to the father and the daughter mm. goes to the mother. Was it difficult for these I mean there, there are only a few male actors obviously the, the cast had the, the two women Hamlet his father's ghost Rosencrantz and, and Guildenstern um, was it very did the actors have a lot of fun with the project and was it really difficult for them to understand how you'd altered the exchanges between the characters? Uh, it, it, it wasn't because, uh, don't forget that I, um, although I, I made everybody, um, you know, I, I altered the perspective <laughs> of the play, but Hamlet, uh, Shakespeare's three acts of Hamlet uh, remained intact. Nothing was deleted. Mm -hmm. Nothing was taken out because my purpose was to say everything using and then, his beautiful language. Yes, and and also show a different perspective on it. And of course, his fourth act I uh, uh, turned into uh, mm. a prologue, the first one, uh, Ophelia's death and other thing. But I didn't use all of it. Mm. And the last one, I just sh shortened it and uh, turned it into an epilogue. Okay. Now the second one is called um, is called. Shakespeare and Me mm -hmm. um, and it's about um, two um, uh, Hungarian actresses called Agnes and Eva um, who are involved in acting in a Shakespeare play. Now what happens in that one? Okay, um, first thing is that uh, uh, one is Hungarian Eva is Hungarian mm -hmm. but Agnes is English uh, she actually uh, went from Britain to teach in Hungary but the characters are Hungarian mm -hmm. so what happens there is that um, the, the national, I don't know whether the National Theatre here has exams, um, but uh, you can sit for four exams for admission into the National Theatre. So uh, 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 Agnes, the, 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 you know, the feminist woman, uh, she's failed three times and she's got just one chance. And she says, I'm going to do whatever I want. You know, if I fail, then I've at least, uh, you know, had enjoyment of bashing at them. So she takes about eight pieces from Shakespeare. One is uh, a sonnet on love and she brings the female element into it. Then she has one of uh, the uh, seven ages of man. And, uh, you know, why didn't he write seven ages of woman? You know, <laughs> so she does seven ages of woman and then she does Desdemona. She says uh, she does Taming of the Shrew mm. and uh, Lady Macbeth. Mm. And, you know, I recently saw, uh, 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 you know, uh, at the at the picture mm. house, this sort of relayed uh, mm. uh, performance in, in London mm. uh, of the Taming of, of the Shrew. It was horrific. Mm. It was overplayed, absolutely overplayed. Mm. And so I 
again, look at it, you know, why was she like that? So, so, you, so you want people to take more imagination in the development of yes. the roles of women, that's what yes, you're looking absolutely. at. Yes, yeah. absolutely, and, and Shakespeare is littered with, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, Lady Macbeth, you mm. know, the blame of all the murders that, mm. that Macbeth committed are put on mm. Lady Macbeth. Mm. Mm. Finally, the last piece um, centres on the character of Caliban from The Tempest. Yes. Um, what is it that you do with Caliban? He, he's the enslaved and ugly servant to Prospero. Isn't yes, he? Yeah, yeah. yes. Now, this is a sort of col- colonisation mm. play, and I put it on its head again, and I, I show post-colonisation. So, uh, the, in The Tempest, um, <clears throat> Prospero and, and all the things they think, they land on this island, and uh, there's nobody there there apart from Ariel uh, they, they catch Ariel and they catch Caliban and uh, Caliban is an ugly sort of you know mm. uh, man and Ariel is uh, mm. is a beautiful person uh, he's the spirit and and Caliban is the body mm. so I um uh, I okay you, you've, you've hijacked that and you've reworked it but into what absolutely into into a reality of what colonies were mm. when the British went there, colonised it, said they are all savages, and it turned out they were not savages. In order to protect the island and the people on the island, mm. Caliban's mother put a magic on everybody on the island so they will not enslave anyone there. Mm. But uh, Ariel, who was sort of, you know, into the tree, the magic didn't work on, on him, and on Caliban half changed. So that's why they were... And you know, in Shakespeare's play, neither Ariel nor Caliban ever meet each other. And this is the, the colonial policy of the British to keep people apart. Great stuff, Ronnie Tree. Thank you very much indeed for coming to talk about your plays. They're always interesting. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for interviewing me once more. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. time to take a peek at what's coming up in the city in the next few weeks. If you're listening to the rerun of the show, this will be out of date. Singer Neil Finn takes the stage at the Corn Exchange on Sunday the 4th of May as part of his 2014 Dizzy Heights album tour. Work by artist Ian Rawlinson goes on show at a new exhibition entitled Vessel at Williams Art in Gwider Street on May the 7th and runs until the 1st of June. A new version of the provocative play Spring Awakening by Frank Wedekind in 1906 opens at the Arts Theatre on Tuesday, April 29th, exploring the world of youth-caused riots, partly rewritten and modernised by playwright Anya Rice. That's followed by 90s play The Things We Do For Love by Alan Eichborn at the Arts Theatre on May 5th. A bedroom farce develops between two shared house neighbours with politics that clash. 
On April 27th, the Cambridge Classical Concert Series continues with the Basel Symphony Orchestra at the Corn Exchange, with conductor Dennis Russell Davis and cellist Matt Horowitz playing work by influential 20th century composers Arvo Part, Philip Glass and John Adams. Cockney songstress Pamela Faith opens at the Corn Exchange on May the 24th, featuring hits from her new album, A Perfect Contradiction. And that's all we have time for in this edition of Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed listening in on Cambridge 105 and will tell us about your creative stories. Feeling ghosty 